Welcome to the Storytellers Love Podcast, where everyday women share stories of God's love. I'm Robin, and I am here with Katie and Lindy, and today we are bringing you Tori's story from Jackson, Mississippi. They had a live gathering a few weeks ago, and this story is so beautiful. It really is, and it's a a unique story in that it kind of gives us a little insight into a politician's wife, um, which I just really found so fascinating. But it also just shows us how to honestly suffer well in the circumstances that life brings us and honestly how to be a great caregiver to your husband as well. I love Tori. I loved her voice. And I think you're going to love her as well. She's such a beautiful storyteller. And we know that y'all are going to love this. So here's Tori. Well, I'm so glad to see y'all. And I'm happy Storytellers is back in person because I've been blessed by coming to Storytellers. So I know that when you are Storytellers, you're telling a particular story of your life, not your whole life story. So y'all be really thrilled to know that I've narrowed it down to about two hours. (laughs) (laughs) I really could go for days. And it's not my story. It's God's story. And you all know that, and God's story is amazing, and He has done amazing things in my life, and I was praying about what part of my life I was supposed to share with you today, because there have been a lot of watershed events in my life, and I was praying about it, and I said, Lord, I just really need you to show me, and within an hour, I got a text from my daughter-in-law saying, hey, um, I'm a, you want me to use that verse, Psalm 91, 4? And that verse is particular to this story. So I knew then God had shown me in a very tangible, literally in black and white with a text message. This is a story I want you to share from your life. And it's God's story. I'll be really brief. I I married uh, my husband, Alan Nunley, in 1982. And uh, we had three beautiful children. We had a very adventurous life. And we loved to travel, and we loved to try new things, and we were always going all the time. Baseball tournaments, horse shows, choir performances, that kind of stuff with our children. Well, our children grew up, thank God, and um, they married, thank God, and they all married believers. And so I'm blessed to be the mother in love of two daughters in love and one son in love that all know Jesus, and so I'm very blessed by that. We decided in 2010, after a lot of prayer, and I mean a lot of prayer, that my husband would leave the Mississippi Senate, and we're glad today to have a, a, a favorite House of Representatives member from Mississippi who served for 30 years. We're glad you're here today. Alan decided he was going to leave the Mississippi Senate to run for the U.S. House of Representatives in 2010. Now, I've already told you we were adventurers, and I knew this was going to be the greatest adventure of all, and it was a little intimidating, but we had prayed about it and felt very confident that that's what we were supposed to do. We didn't feel confident we were going to win. We just knew we were supposed to run, and we did. And consequently, with God's help, actually with his divine intervention, we were elected. And I say we because if you serve in the legislature, as you know, it's a couple thing. It's a whole family thing. It's not just one person. Because the whole family takes on the criticisms, the hateful things that are said about your family or your loved one. That kind of stuff happens all the time. But we went to Washington. We got us a little 400-square-foot apartment that was a pre-World War II apartment. 
I promise you, there was no room on the floor was from World War II. <laughs> the refrigerator had to be from 1950, and it shook and rattled. Um, it was a tiny, 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 grungy-looking apartment, but it was very expensive, and it's all we could get. So we lived there, and um, still the adventure was awesome. Every night, we walked hand-in-hand. After we would take our nightly stroll, we'd walk right past the Capitol and the Supreme Court building, the Library of Congress. We lived in that neighborhood, and we would want to pinch ourselves. Are we really here? And on the weekends, if we were in D.C., we were like tourists, actually like kids. We were anxious to visit every monument, every museum. And so we were having the time of our life. We were dating again. Our children were happy and married and had children of their own. Well, two of them did. And um, we were very happy. And so we got the news that um, our son had cancer. And so we had to walk through that from afar. They kind of, our son and daughter-in-law set the example for us on what it looks like to walk as a believer in the face of a very hard time. Now, as his parents, it was hard because, I mean, we were his parents. But we trusted God, and we got through it. They got through it, and praise God, he's been cancer-free for 10 years now. But they showed us something when they were walking through that fire. They taught us that, how to walk through fire. And so um, it helped us a lot when we started, this is going to be funny, but we started a re-election campaign, and it was horrible. It was like a scorched earth campaign, and people were saying hateful mean things, and um, I was so, so distressed. And I was in a Bible study in Washington. It was on the third floor of the Capitol, and we could literally hear the gavel fall in the house. So as we, other wives of elected members, we were on our knees in prayer, and a friend of mine in that group said, um, I can sense that you're really discouraged. I want you to read this book. And she gave me the book by Ian Voskamp called 1,000 Gifts. And it, it really challenged me, and it changed my way of viewing things. And so this is just a little side note, and it's important to me that you know this. In spite of what you see in the media, and in spite of what you read on the Internet, you must know that there are people in our nation's capital that love and serve our God. And they don't just talk about it. They live it every single day. They pray, and they meet together to pray. And so they're not the ones you see on the news. They're that quiet army behind the scenes. We were a part of that army. So I wanted to throw that out there for you because you need to know that, that it's not, it's not all that you see. There's a lot more to it, and there is a battle raging there. So this friend of mine in Washington handed me this book, 1,000 Gifts, that I told you changed my life. Now, my life burst because of some things I've been through previously and some, some demons, if you will, that I've kind of fought in my mind. My life verse was Philippians 4, 8. Y'all know that one about think on these things, things that are pure and holy and true. All right, well, I learned... And I looked it up so I'd be sure I don't quote it wrong. Philippians 4, 6 through 7. This is what the book taught me. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, was highlighted 
in that book, 1,000 Gifts. Thanksgiving, Eucharist. And I thought, now, how, how do you do that when people are lying about your husband on television? How do you give thanks for that reward? I can think that some people know the truth and they turn the TV off. How do you give thanksgiving when people are telling your children that their father is deserving of death because of something he voted on? Well, Lord, I can thank you that one day they will answer for that. That kind of thanksgiving was in my mind at that time. But what I didn't know was that as I began to live a life of thanksgiving and journaling thanksgiving, things I was thankful for every day, God was preparing me for the toughest battle of my life, the worst and toughest thing I'd ever been through. Because a little over a year later, my husband was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And I remember, I, I won't go into all those details, but I remember feeling, what am I thankful for? I'm not thankful for this. And the verse, 1 Thessalonians 5.18 came out, and I read, Alan and I read scripture together every day. And that verse came out, and it says, in all circumstances, give thanks. And the word in was highlighted in my Bible. In all circumstances. It didn't say for all circumstances. It said in. In all circumstances. So we had a month before Alan was having surgery on the tumor. And I went out and bought a poster board. And I wrote on that poster board, and he did too, every day. I taped it up on our little dingy apartment door. And every day we wrote something we were thankful for in that circumstance. And it could have been the bowl of soup that one of his staff members brought to our house from Panera Bread. It could have been for big things like an answer to prayer for one of our children. But we wrote something every day we were thankful for. And we filled up that poster board. And then we got a second one in that month. And we started filling that one up. So we went to Houston, Emmy Anderson, to have the surgery. And the surgeon, we met him for the first time, and he said, you're going to get the bulk of the tumor out, but it's a glioblastoma, which means there are fingers that we cannot remove, and they will continue to grow. You'll need chemo and radiation. And Alan said, well, what's the prognosis, Doc? He said, well, if you, if you do nothing, you will be dead in two months. If you do everything, you'll probably have 12 to 18 months. And the room was silent. I'm a nurse. I knew what the word glioblastoma meant. I knew from experience that that was a death sentence. And I began to grieve that moment in time because I knew that my beloved was leaving unless God intervened. So he said, well, what's the prognosis? And the doctor said 12 to 18 months, and that kept ringing in my ears. And as we sat there in silence, he just suddenly said, well, I guess i got to do some bull riding. <laughs> Put a little levity in the situation. It shook us to the core. We jumped in the car. We were having surgery two days later. So we got in the car, and we drove the 500 miles back to Jackson so that we could face our sons and their wives. We had to FaceTime our daughter, who lived in Virginia. We had to tell them the news. It's not good news. The drive back, we were totally silent. And I had to drive because of the risk of seizures that Alan had. So I'm driving and I'm crying. I'm literally sobbing the whole way back from Houston. And I'm just this empty shell. I had no feeling. Just go home, just go home, just go home. And Alan, just out of the silence, somewhere in Louisiana, said, You know what? 
I taught the kids how to drive a car. I taught them how to ride a bicycle. I taught the boys how to shave and how to treat a lady. I guess I'm going to have to teach them how a believer dies. And I looked at him, and I said, here's my thanksgiving. There's what I could be thankful for. He understands the big picture. I didn't understand what his job was. He's their daddy. And I dreaded telling them that had to be one of the worst days of my life to look through the eyes and share that news with them. So after we told them, and we told them we were going to have the surgery in two days, the whole family, my husband's whole family, all went to Houston, and we were all together for this surgery. And somewhere in the middle of the surgery, it was hours long, I sensed something was wrong. I, I, did, I couldn't put my finger on it. I didn't know why, but my spirit was sensing there was something amiss. And my husband's mother said, something's wrong, Tori. I can see it on your face. And I told her, I don't know what it is. But yes, something's wrong. I don't know what it is. And I just began to pray. And then a few hours later, the doctor came out, and he told us that Alan had a massive stroke in the surgery, that his whole left side was paralyzed, that he was unable to communicate. Now, I want you to get a picture of this six-foot-one, 220-pound man that speaks for a living. He's left-handed. He can't use his whole left side, and he can't talk. He's mumbling, and nobody could understand him. And when we finally got to see him in person, he was mumbling, and I kept listening, and I finally made out something he was saying four score and seven years ago. <laughs> and it dawned on me. He was, he was trying to communicate with people, and they couldn't understand what he said. So he thought, if I say something everybody knows and they can pick up on it, they'll know I'm in here. I'm in here. And I said, are you saying the Gettysburg address? <laughs> and he just looked at me. He couldn't communicate in any way. He was just looking. And I said, that's what you're saying. The Gettysburg address. And I said, I know you're in there. I know you're in there. I said, we're going to get you out, I promise. And so we did. We did that. We had planned to go back to Washington because the doctor had said that Alan would be in the hospital two days. This was before the surgery. And that in a week's time, he could go back to the nation's capital and work and do his chemo and radiation in Washington. Well, the picture was different now. And so he spent a few weeks in Houston doing stroke rehab. And then he made it very clear in his muddled way that he was going back to Washington. So we made arrangements for him to go to Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. And that's where we lived. He did physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, chemo, and radiation. And we were there for several months living in a hospital room while he did all that. And he made it abundantly clear to his therapy staff, I'm going back to Washington. His speech therapist is everyone that could understand him and me. <laughs> But we all knew what he was saying. And I would tell the therapist, he's saying he's going back to Washington. And they would be like, okay. <laughs> and he's in a wheelchair. And he's unable to feed himself, dress himself. He's left-handed, so he's trying to use his right hand. And he's awkward. And I said to him one day, welcome to my world about being awkward. Because I've always been awkward. And my son takes after me. We're all awkward. I said, welcome to my world now, Mr. Awkward. I had to bathe him. I had to do everything for a while because I was his caregiver. He wouldn't let other people touch him. 
I was looking back at my journals because I wanted to impart something of how I felt during those days. And I, I must share with you, I'm going to read to you just a portion of a journal entry um, of how I felt. But I want you to know that I had to read the journal to remember. Mm-hmm. And that's God's great good news. That reading the journal spurred my memory because God has taken not an eraser, but he has taken something to blur the hard edges of pain. Do you hear what I'm saying? With time, he has blurred the hard edges of pain. But I wanted you to know exactly how it felt to be in that hospital room away from family. I'll just tell you what I read. I was laying on the floor because Alan, he didn't want me in the recliner that's sitting in the room. It was too far away. And I couldn't move that big recliner next to his bed because then the staff couldn't get around the bed. So I had a pallet in the floor. And it was very, very cold in that hospital, very cold, and I was cold all the time, and I would lay on the floor with my left hand up through the railings, holding his right hand while he slept, because he only slept in intervals of 15 to 30 minutes, and then he would wake up terrified, having a nightmare or a scream, and I would try to calm him and console him and tell him, it's okay, you're okay. And for months, I laid in that hospital floor and held his hand through the, the hospital bed rail. And I remember as I laid there thinking as the sliver of light, I could see the bottom of the door and I'd hear the carts and the beeping sounds outside that door. I just remember as long as that door was shut, we were safe. And we had started memorizing Psalm 91. In verse 4, which is the verse that Kimberly said she was going to share on our publication, says that he will cover you with his feathers, and under his wing you will take refuge. And so as I laid on the hospital floor, looking at that sliver of light, praying to God that door would not open, because every time that door opened, it meant that there was something coming in that I didn't want in there. As long as that door was closed and I was laying there, we were under his wing, and I felt his presence, and I knew that we were protected by his wing, that we were covered with his feathers. It was an us thing, a we thing. Because when we said that day that we were pledged to stay together in sickness and in health, we were in sickness. Sickness was hard. And I knew as long as that door was shut, we were under his wing. And there was a lot of safety and solace in that. And he would listen to music on his earbuds. I would turn the music on, put the earbuds in his ears. And occasionally the earbud would fall out of one ear as he would fall asleep. And one night I remember hearing George Beverly Shea singing his eyes on the sparrow. And I got up and I journaled, God, he is my sparrow. Is your eye on him? I had doubts on that night. And I, I loved him so much. I asked God over and over, are you really seeing us? Is your eye really on him? He's my precious bird. Are you really watching over him? All the time, we are not acknowledging a death date. We're dealing with stroke rehabilitation so he can go back to Washington. We're not dealing with the impending end. It's a lot easier to deal with what you're dealt with day by day than what's in the future, right? So we marched on, and y'all will not believe the transformation that took place in that man. And in October, he returned to Washington. 
he had to be wheeling his wheelchair to the door of the house of representatives floor. He would get out of the wheelchair. He had an aide that walked on his left side, and he used a cane on his right side. And he said, I won't go back till I can walk onto the floor for votes. And I watched him from the gallery take his first step onto the floor, and I wept. And I said, God, you were so good. You were so good. And I had faith that God would do a miraculous healing and use this man and his platform to tell of his mercy and about how God had healed him miraculously of this brain tumor. I had so much faith that that would happen. Because what better person to heal than somebody that's got a public forum like he had? The day he went back to the House of Representatives, he was asked to open the Republican caucus with prayer and the pledge. And I wheeled him to the podium and helped him to stand up. And he stood at that podium and he said, I know I look different. I know I talk different. But I want you to know what the difference is in my life. The true difference is that when I was a little boy, I asked Jesus in my heart. And I learned a little song that said, this joy that I have, the world didn't give it and the world can't take it away. And he said, you may be seeing me as different, but I'm telling you that God changed my life that day when I was a little boy. And I'm prepared for what he has for me. Be sure that you are. There were over 400 people in that room members of Congress, and their staff. And I stood there in amazement as I watched grown men, men I did know and men I didn't know, women I knew and women I didn't know, crying, weeping. And I knew then that the Holy Spirit was going to use Alan's story, God's story in Alan, to change lives. So we fast forward, and then we came home for December break, and Alan had some setbacks, ended up in the hospital, and that's when we found out that the tumor was back with a vengeance. And that what we thought would be 12 to 18 months actually was only going to be nine months. He died in February. And uh, I remember thinking when he died, I mean, I have journals where I wrote on the day he died, Lord, you took him home, loved on him, kiss on him, dance with him. All these entries, prayers, I prayed to God. But I was so hurt and so empty, and I actually kind of bewildered why God didn't heal him. I was so hoping for healing, but you know what he did? The week before Alan died, was unable to speak because he, the tumor had taken over his speech. And he said, just suddenly his eyes were closed, he opened his eyes and he looked around, and he said, who's calling my name? And I thought that's when God was healing him. <laughs> and the sisters were in the room. We all jumped up and ran to his side. He said, who's calling my name? And he's looking around. And I said, nobody's, nobody's calling you, Alan, but we're right here, right here. And he said, who is that? Who's calling my name? And he's looking around. And then he took a gasp of air and he went, oh, it's beautiful. Oh, it's so beautiful. And as he looked around the room, I knew in that minute that's how God was going to heal him. He was going to take him home. And he was going to have perfect healing. That healing I had prayed for, God was doing. He was going to take him home. And then a little bit later, he mentioned seeing his grandparents who were deceased. He called them by name. And I learned from that experience that I don't know a lot about heaven. The Bible says some things about it. But I know this, what God taught me in that. He taught me that we are known by our name. 
and we're called by our name. And one day he will call us home by our name. I know that heaven's a beautiful place. It's got to be beautiful. It wouldn't be heaven if it wasn't. And I know that we will know our loved ones. I feel that. We will know who they are. I don't believe we'll be married in heaven. I don't believe we'll be mothers and fathers. I just think we'll all be brothers and sisters, and we will love each other and know each other. So the day of the funeral visitation came. We were sitting at the table, and my daughter was sitting to my left, and she just brushed something off her shoulder. Where that came from? And brushed it off, and it was just a little white feather. I don't know where sitting on her shoulder. And I went into my closet, and I was standing in the closet in my bronze slip, Looking around, what do you wear to a funeral visitation? Just looking around my closet, kind of numb. And I reached up and I pulled a blast down from the top and a white feather fell as the blast came down. And then it hit me, that feather on my daughter's shoulder, this feather. Then we showed up at the funeral home or at the funeral, the church, for visitation. And there was a feather on the floor right in front of where my mother was sitting. And then we got to the graveside the day of the funeral, the day after the funeral, and there were feathers all over the graveside. My husband's sister was packing her car to go back home. She opened the trunk, and there was a feather in her trunk. God is using Psalm 91.4. He will cover you with his feathers to remind all of us that we are covered with his feathers. So the feathers kept coming for a long, long time. And if I'm perfectly honest with you, they're still coming at random times, just when I need to see them. But 14 months went by. It was unusual, the amount of feelings I had. I remember walking to my bedroom one night and not wanting to go to bed. I just didn't want to go in that room. This is what I journaled. For some time, I struggled with going to my bedroom after darkness. Oh, God, break the curse of the night, I pray. Beauty for ashes. Praise music is blaring in the room, but nothing seems to shake the suppressiveness. Why? That room should be the most beautiful place for me to go. It is the place I spend early mornings by first sunlight, worshiping and praying. I sit in the room, a place where I could be laid bare before my bridegroom and felt free to love and be loved. I knew every inch of me was exposed and open for scrutiny. Yet I also knew that what I would receive is pure and simple appreciation and a steadfast love. You showed me in that very room your own desire to be adored. Father, in that room I laid the trials of the day to rest. I curled up in the arms of my lover and protector, knowing he was from you. So why now, why do I feel so completely unattached and oppressed by that room? Is it because it became a hospital room, a place of death and dying? The place where I looked into the eyes of the strongest man I've ever known and heard his heart cry out for mercy. He told me in the room he did not want to leave me as the tears rolled down his cheeks. And I was on my knees with my head buried on his lap. He stroked my hair and he told me he was worried to leave me behind alone. He said, you don't need to live alone. He said he knew I had a strong faith and I would survive. 
but he was concerned I had begun to lose my joy. He instinctively knew I was heartbroken at the thought of doing life without him. I had not voiced that fear, because if I allowed it to come from my mouth, I would be admitting I didn't trust God to heal him. I believed with all my heart he could, and I prayed he would with every source of faith I had. In that late morning moment, looking into the eyes of that darling, crippled, and maimed brother, I felt no hope. For the first time, I knew he was not long for this world, and sadly, he knew it too. We had several minutes of gazing at each other in the deafening silence of awareness, a moment of shared despair and fear, a moment that literally hung in space between us. It was the beginning of the end. Maybe I can't face the bedroom because that is where I looked death in the face for the first time and was frightened by it all. Maybe I avoid all the memories of May the 6th through February the 6th. But God, I do not want to continue living in denial. Help me to recall the good, the horrific, the pain, the fear, the joy, the images, the words spoken and unspoken. Help me, God, to remember and to put it all in the perspective of your cross, nailed and scourged, beaten but not overcome. Jesus, you set the example, and with your help, I pray I can be a living example of your faithfulness. This time with a purpose, taking authority over all principalities of darkness and hurling and twirling in the light of your glory. The pain was real, and I lived with it. Just so, it was so visceral every day. I continued to go through the motions. And then one day, 14 months later, I was sitting outside in my patio reading my daily reading, and I came to Isaiah 61. And as I read these words, it said, it's talking about Jesus. He says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, that was me, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. And then he says, he was sent to comfort all who mourn and provide for their grief and to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. And in the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And I woke up. I heard the birds singing. I saw Isaiah's blooming. I felt the sun shining on my shoulder, and I realized it had been 14 months since I had seen or heard any of that. I woke up. And from that point to today, feathers are coming. And he reminds me every day that he's with me and he covers me. And I can always hide under his wing. And you probably saw my last name is not Nudley anymore, it's Barbara. And that's another story. We've been sitting here for five minutes discussing mm-hmm. Tori's story before we even hit record because there is so much to talk about, you know, just from heaven to giving thanks to pain to to thankfulness. Yeah. I already said thankfulness. <laughs> right. We're going to say it yes. again. Well, I mean, because Thanksgiving is such a key 
a part of a walk in a believer's life. I did the Ann Voskamp study years ago, A Thousand Gifts, and the power of sitting down with pen and paper, especially in the midst of your struggles and writing out what you are thankful for Mm -hmm. is humbling. Mm -hmm. I mean, because it makes you see God in the everyday moments of life, the gifts that he gives us every single day. And it just immediately shifts your mindset. It is a powerful, powerful tool in the walk of a believer. Absolutely. And that Thanksgiving thread was just evident throughout her story. And I tell you, when they were riding back from Houston in the middle of Louisiana, when he said, Mm. I got to teach my boys how a believer dies. Oh, wow. I've cried on several storytellers' story, yeah. but that was definitely a moment. Because what a picture and, and almost what an, what an honor to mm. be called in that direction. Also, when he walked on the House floor and, you know, challenged the people yes. in mm-hmm. D.C., you know, I'm prepared for what God has mm-hmm. for me. And, and, and he knew that and mm-hmm. he challenged them. I loved it so much. And... I loved that she encouraged us that there are believers in Washington, D.C. Yes, I know. That was, that was so nice to hear. Really, really interesting <laughs> Because picture. we don't see that in the media, like she said. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It, it was a really interesting kind of behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And another part, you know, in talking about her pain that I thought was so interesting, is she said that over time, God has blurred the hard edges of her yes. pain, that she went back to her journal to remember. Because mm-hmm. there are things like gratitude that she mm-hmm. talked about that still live you know, on the surface that she practices today. But but she really had to go back to remember those difficult moments she walked through. And to me, that was so encouraging when we're walking through a really hard time and it feels like it's so in front of you and you just wonder if you're ever going to get out. And she said, you know, I had to go back and reread mm-hmm. right. what I walked through right. at the time it's to remember. It's just another way that God is kind to us. Yes. You know. And, you know, also when she gave those descriptions of her husband when he was towards the end of his mm-hmm. life and how she said, you know, that he's, he was like, they're calling my name. Oh, yeah. And, and then when he gasped and said, it, it's beautiful. I just, you know, for me, it just gave me chills because I love an eternal perspective. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that was such a big eternal perspective for me. And I don't know who needs to hear this, but God knows your name yes. and he sees you and you will be called home one day by that name. And we're going to know our loved ones that went before us. They're going to be waiting for us, cheering us on. God's word tells us that. And I just don't know who needs to hear that today. If you're struggling in your life, if you're in a, in a season of heartache and pain, we have an eternal home mm-hmm. waiting for us where there is no more crying or sadness or pain. And it was just, I loved it. I loved it. Yes. Thank you all so much for listening. We know that you loved Tori's story as much as we did. So if you know her, see her on social media, give her a big thank you and reach out. Thanks for listening today. We hope you're having a great summer and we can't wait to talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.